Welcome to RAGE, the podcast at the University of Denver's Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, uh, otherwise known as IRISE. Uh, I am the show's host, Tom Romero. I'm a professor of law and history here at the University of Denver. I also get to help lead and direct um, all the great and wonderful people from faculty, staff, and students uh, that make up IRISE. RAGE explores the risks and rewards of being a critical race scholar in higher education. The past couple of years has sparked an unprecedented conversation about racial and connected forms of social inequality in an era of black lives, dreamers, the Flint water crisis, Standing Rock, and vigorous backlash against these movements. Everyone is talking about rage in brand new ways. Critical scholarship and public engagement by race scholars and op-eds, blogs, and essays have often been at front and center in these formulations. Yet, in higher education, we have either taken for granted or ignored altogether the emotional, professional, and even physical risks to which race scholars are subjected. Though race scholars have long made enormous contributions to understand, understanding systemic and institutionalized forms of inequality, their work has been marginalized, sometimes silenced, and often ignored. The consequence has been long-simmering collective disillusionment about the campuses and institutions of which we are a part, while the rage of others against race scholars is legitimized and made policy and practice. For this episode, I'm here to talk about such issues with Dr. Melina Abdullah, Professor and Chair of Pan-African Studies at California State University, Los Angeles. Dr. Abdullah is a recognized expert on race, gender, class, and social movements, and author of numerous articles and book chapters, with subjects ranging from political coalition building to womanist mothering. Uh, Dr. Abdullah, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank good. you. Um, on your faculty webpage, um, you describe yourself as a woman, womanist scholar activist. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what that means? Sure. Um, so I ascribe and um, try to embody womanism. So Alice Walker's definition of womanism, right? So this idea that I'm a, a black and a woman and a mother and from the working class and all of these things all of the all at the same time and so it requires that I engage in work and struggle um, to bring freedom on all fronts simultaneously um, as a scholar activist as a womanist scholar activist it means that I move from that perspective in the classroom in intellectual spaces in all of the work that I do and then it also requires that I engage beyond um, academia, that I do work in community. Uh, my primary purpose for being is to kind of um, step into what I believe is a sacred duty um, in kind of being a part of this iteration of black freedom struggle. Great. You, you mentioned the importance of community and that's going to really go into to my next question. Um, and, and you pivoted perfectly. Your identity as a scholar is, is connected to your community engagement. And you've been a leader in the fight for ethnic studies. Um, you were part of the historic victory that made ethnic studies a requirement in the Los Angeles yeah. Unified School District. Uh, you were among the original group of organizers for uh, that convened to form the Black Lives Matter. And you continue to serve as a Los Angeles chapter lead. Tell us, as you build upon just kind of your last answer, tell us a little bit more about what you can do from your place as a professor 
that you might not be able to do as just a full-time organizer or activist? Well, one, Black Lives Matter is a movement that was birthed by many different people who have different um, spaces that we occupy in our regular lives, right? So yeah. it's nobody's job to be a Black Lives Matter organizer. It's our sacred duty, but it's not our job. So all of us have different occupations, right? And so I couldn't be a full-time Black Lives Matter organizer because there's really no such thing. Although, I guess in a way, all of us are full-time Black Lives Matter organizers because we carry it with us wherever we go, yeah. right? Um, as a professor, um, I am in Black Studies. My department is Pan-African Studies, recognizing that black people's freedom all over the world is connected. Um, we were born not of the institution, but of community and student struggle that said, you know, we want to um, in some way kind of abolish a system of academia that imposes white supremacy upon us. And in that abolitionist frame, we also have to have a vision for what it is we do want. And so we build from a space where we're correcting subject matter, filling in subject matter, right? Um, giving information, um, equipping students with intellectual tools that are rooted in who we are as black people. Um, but we also kind of create a classroom space that recognizes that um, knowledge comes from many places. And so we were having a conversation earlier, you absolutely have to read books, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we want people to read books. We want people to be um, immersed in ideas, right? There's brilliance that comes out of the writings of some of our um, wonderful thinkers, you know? Um, but that's not the only place that knowledge comes from. Knowledge comes from sitting at your grandmother's feet right? Knowledge comes from your own personal experiences. Um, in Black Studies classrooms, in Pan-African Studies classrooms, and prayerfully within my classroom, you know, um, I try to do a good job of kind of engaging in a pedagogy that says that all of those places of knowledge production are equally important. And in fact, it's probably the experiential knowledge, if we were to prioritize anything, it's that. Because um, a lot of the stuff we know anyway, you know. Um, and then, you know, lastly, we try to do research that's meaningful for the work that we continue to do. So just as Black stu Studies was born out of struggle, we, um, are stay, we stay within the struggle, right? So Black Studies always has to struggle for our own survival. We're at the 50-year anniversary of Black Studies, mm -hmm. right? We're still struggling against constant assaults against us, right? But Black Studies is also, um, I always say it's one of the most enduring, it's probably the most enduring victory of the Black Power Movement, right? And so what that means is we have to think about, well, what does a Black Power Movement look like now? So you can't be a Black Studies scholar and ignore what's happening to black people at the hands of police. You can't be a black studies scholar and ignore what's happening to black mothers in terms of, you know, um, maternal health, right? You can't be a black studies scholar and ignore the privatization of public education, right? So black studies scholarship means doing work and producing um, traditional scholarship that's mm -hmm. useful to those who are on the ground, some of us being some of those on the ground, right, yeah. that are trying to transform the world that we live in. Right?
Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, tomorrow, uh, you're you're going for a hearing uh, after being arrested, right? For uh, at, at, during a police commission hearing, um, and in public um, here at the University of Denver, in in all the work that you do, uh, both in Los Angeles and all over the country, you've taken positions where you've expressly denounced racists and white supremacy. Um, would you be willing to share both the pushback you may have received from these sorts of incidents, uh, incidences or public stances, as well as the support or lack thereof um, you may have received institutionally, whether from a dean, a provost, or a president, uh, and from students? Sure. So I'm on trial right now. I'm actually in pretrial. Um, I'm being prosecuted for engaging in work um, to push back against the murder of black people at the hands of police. Um, and so while I can't go into the details of my case right now because it's an open case, um, I don't regret doing that work. I believe that that work is important work. I don't think that you can be an effective organizer and say I'm only going to abide by the <laughs> rules that the system that is literally killing us gives me, mm -hmm. right? And so I think that we have a right to speak out. Um, I think that, you know, it's very hypocritical for people to be saying, um, for institutions to say that they stand for justice, right? Um, the district attorney of Los Angeles County, her office is in the hall, so-called hall of justice. Um, you can't say that you stand for justice or stand for the people. And in Los Angeles County, 450 people have been killed by police in the last six years. And only after more than a year of protest did she choose to charge a single officer. Right? So... 449 other murders, including the murders of children, right? Including the murders of mostly unarmed people, right? Including the mur murders of mothers, right, at the hands of police. None of these police are being charged, but who they're criminalizing is the black people, and I wanna be real explicit about that. It's only black protesters who are being charged for opening our mouths and saying, stop killing us. And so I wanna point to the ridiculousness of that. Right, that the criminals are the people who are committing the murder. But when we dare to say, stop killing us, right, then we're dubbed the criminals. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, that's part of kind of what we face. Um, and that's part of, you know, um, how the institutions descend upon us. But um, yesterday I was part of or went with a delegation that brought more than 11,000 signatures to the city attorney who's charging me with these eight counts, right? Um, more than 300 letters um, have been signed off on by academics in institutions around the country, right? There are people globally who couldn't sign on to the Color of Change petition because you need a U.S. zip code who sent in dozens and dozens of letters from across the globe, right? People are calling our city attorney daily, telling him to drop the charges against me, but more than that, stop criminalizing black protest. And so what keeps me moving forward is the idea that I'm not in this by myself. Right now, it's my face, right? But it's not about me. 
And it's about a movement and people are willing to rise up and be a part of a movement that says, you know, we're going to tackle these systems that kill our people. We're not going to just sit there and take it and be quiet and politely say, please, right? We're going to demand that they stop killing our people, that they stop brutalizing our people. We just got data that black people are pulled over. Black people have known this forever. This is why experiential knowledge is so important, right? So we've been talking about driving while black for decades, right? People have been talking about, black people have been talking about surviving police encounters for generations, right? And finally, there's data that shows that black people in Los Angeles are pulled over at five times our population share, right? And so now, you know, we have data that demonstrates what we always knew, um, but we can't just submit to that. We can't say, oh, it's okay to police pull us over at five times our population share, or that black kids are being pulled out of class to be random, randomly searched by police on their campuses. And so we have to rise up, and I think people are recognizing their ability to rise up and our capacity to actually win. Thank you. Um, I have a couple more questions for, for you. Um, what do you think that institutions of higher education can do to truly support who you become? Um, and I think one of the things, just sort of to elaborate a bit on it, uh, to sort of think about this, is your, your, your personal experience, your generational familial experience is also connected to your professional experience and, and your professional identity. These identities are hard to uh, sort of unpackage. And when you were talking with, in sort of your answer to your previous question, I was, I was thinking um, one of my first, my, my first hire at, on, a, on a tenure track, I ended up at, at a school that had a social justice mission. And when I had done some research on that school, they had uh, one of my soon-to-be future colleagues, which was, um, had been arrested and, and similar for, for protesting. And the dean of the institution had, had come out in, in public very strongly in support of, of uh, that colleague. And so I see those sort of personal acts being really important and, and can say a lot about at least the atmosphere. But institutionally, uh, you know, what can be done to, to cultivate and to grow um, more people like you? Sure, so I think institutions can be very clear in the side they're on, right? So institutions can either be on the side of the oppressor, which I see as white supremacist, patriarchal, heteronormative capitalism. They can advance um, uh, an educational model that seeks to either create um, students as good workers or as good owners, right? They can seek to do that, or they can use those four years that we have with students to awaken them to their own power and to get them to see themselves as change makers, right? Yeah. They can also embrace activist faculty and um, fund, and that's key, institutions don't like to hear about, sometimes they'll put out rhetoric, oh, we believe in social justice, that's a buzzword now, right? Social justice, frame, community engagement, right? Put your money where your mouth is, right? We wanna see vibrant ethnic studies departments, not programs, departments that have autonomy, right? We wanna see an investment in, um, and I'm gonna be real clear, in black students. Um, 
students of color more broadly, but black students in particular, because this is where we see a plummeting in numbers, right? So we need specific investment in black students, right? We need um, people to, uh, or institutions to not be afraid to say, um, so, so an example is a lot of times institutions will say, well, we're not gonna penalize faculty for their work. Well, we want you to do more. We want you to celebrate that work. And we want you to be clear in how you do it. So um, I think academia tries to act like um, it needs to be neutral. And so when you hear about um, white hate speech on campus, sometimes institutions step back and say, well, that's freedom of speech. You're a law professor, you know this, yeah. right? Um, institutions actually have the right, and I would say the obligation, to protect their students from hate speech, to protect their students from the white supremacist violence that's been whipped up on our campuses. So don't allow you know, people who are aligned with these white supremacist groups, I'm not gonna say their names on camera because they like that, mm -hmm. right? But don't allow them onto the campus because it's a safety issue, right? It's not just a hate speech versus free speech issue. It's a safety issue. And so, you know, we wanna challenge institutions to say we're gonna create spaces where all of our students, and especially the most vulnerable, black students, brown students, um, undocumented students, right? We're going we're gonna to create some protections around them. Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to say a question, but I think we can pull your answer. Okay. Because this is, but I think it's an important question. Um, Rage is the title of the podcast. And as, as the womanist scholar activist that you are, what does that mean for you? I think you've answered that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so my last question then is, Any final thoughts, any final questions that I might have missed, reflections or affirmations um, on how higher educational institutions can be engaged in racial justice that you would like to share for our listeners? Yeah, just institutions don't move on their own, right? Like um, Dr. King talks about how the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, right? But we have to bend that arc. Right? The arc doesn't bend on its own. And so institutions have to be moved. Institutions have to be pushed by the people within it and the people outside of it. Because institutions have been constructed to preserve what is. What is is problematic for a lot of us, right? And so if we want to vision what can be, then we have to create it. Thank you. Um, I want to thank uh, Dr. Melina Abdullah uh, for joining us today. Um, you can also listen to more of her as she's a co-host and co-producer of the weekly radio program, Beautiful Struggle. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Melina Abdullah at Doc Melly Mel. Um, and of course, you can also see her as well uh, as you've been featured in the film uh, 13th, When Justice Isn't, or Justice or Else. Yes. So thank you so thank much. You. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You've reached the end of another episode of the Rage Podcast brought to you by iRise at the University of Denver. Connect with us at www.du.edu forward slash iRise. While there, don't forget to sign up to our newsletter to hear about our initiative to create new pathways, partnerships to racial justice in Colorado and the Rocky Mountain West.